You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One in five adults in the U.S. struggles with a mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder, or PTSD. And with the NIH identifying addiction as a mental illness, the national opioid crisis has only increased the burden on mental health providers. In this segment, Golden Globe award-winning actress and mental health advocate Glenn Close and the sponsors of the Excellence in Mental Health and Addiction Treatment Expansion Act sit down for a conversation about addressing the mental health crisis in America. Let's listen. Well, good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter and author of the Health 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post. And I'm delighted to welcome a few guests to the stage today. Uh, we have seven-time Academy Award-nominated actress and mental health advocate Glenn Close. She's co-founder of Bring Change to Mind, a charity dedicated to confronting the stigma associated with mental illness. <laughs> We also have Senator Roya Blunt, Republican from Missouri, and Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan. And they're sponsors of the Excellence in Mental Health and Addiction Treatment Expansion Act, which is an extension of a 2014 bill that was effective in increasing mental health and addiction services to patients in select states. So let's start off talking a little bit about that legislation. Um, mm -hmm. And we've got some good news, which is you've really found some great results from that 2014 bill, which now you're trying to expand and extend. I'm wondering, Senator Stabenow, can you talk a little bit about the shortcomings that your bill was trying to fix in, the, in mental health care? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you to the Washington Post and to you. I also want to give a shout out and thank uh, Glenn Close, who has for the third time come in to help us with this movement mm -hmm. and move it forward. So thank you so much. And to my partner here, uh, Roy Blunt, uh, I couldn't, we, we couldn't do it without the well, two of us working, working together. together. So, so bottom line, um, we don't treat mental health and addiction services the same as we treat physical health services. Uh, we like to say we want healthcare above the neck to be the same as healthcare below the neck. Uh, and we have at least one in five. We were debating one in five, one in four people that are impacted by mental illness. Either way, it's a big deal. And less than half of them will get treatment in a year. And we know that the number one cause of death in this country is drug overdose for people under age 50. So this is uh, something we have to address. And what we uh, propose and what we're now moving forward with is to mirror the very successful effort of federally qualified health centers, health centers and communities that can accept private pay, public pay services, but are qualified for full Medicaid reimbursement because they provide quality services. And so a community can be designated. It's not just grants. It's not enough to have grants. We, we welcome grants as a supplement, but we want to be integrated into the healthcare system. So behavioral health centers are doing the same thing. Uh, we were able to get support to start uh, the funding for eight states for two years to demonstrate this works. We have eight states that are getting the full funding like a health center. Uh, we have seen uh, psychiatric crisis services, 24-hour services set up in the community so someone's not going to the jail, someone's not sitting in an emergency room for hours or maybe days trying to get help, and it's transforming those communities. And so we've added additional resources, and now the next step is we want to take this more 
broadly across the country. Could you give a few examples of some of the kinds of mental health services that people haven't been able to access, particularly people on Medicaid, that your bill's trying to address? Well, I think we just think any mental health services you need need to be accessed and need to be accessed like you'd access any other health care need. No 14-day limit, no 21-day limit. Uh, just treat mental health like all other health. It's, it's no more complicated than that. Um, in, in our state, where we're one of the eight uh, states that were part of the pilot, uh, I think we have 200 different locations in Missouri where people can go and they know that their mental health issue is going to be dealt with just like any other health issue that they have. Uh, and as, as Debbie said, Paige, one of the things we're trying to do here is really create that body of evidence that shows the impact on your other health issues. You know, if this is one out of four or one out of five adult Americans, imagine all of the other health issues of that 20 or 25 percent of our population. Those issues are much more easily dealt with logically and uh, if your mental health issues being dealt with. So I think we're going to show not only is this the right thing to do, you know, we went to the floor the last day of October 2013, the year we started this effort. It was the 50th anniversary of the last bill President Kennedy signed, which was the Community Mental Health Act. And we sort of went through that bill together on the floor. And many of the things that probably should have been closed got closed. But almost none of the alternatives that that bill envisioned 50 years later uh, were out there as an easy access to whatever mental health problem you need. And again, I think we're going to be able to show in this study, and one reason we want to expand it for another couple of years is to get even a larger body of evidence to show that this is not only the right thing to do, everybody gets that, but it's in the immediate space of health care the financially smart thing to do as well. And I believe we're putting that information together in a way that's going to be pretty persuasive that doing the right thing is also financially the cost effective thing. Glenn, I know this is a really personal topic for you. Can you share with the audience what led you to get involved in advocating for mental health care? Um, my sister came to me, my sister Jessie. Uh, she, she was in her probably middle, I mean, beginning of her 40s. She said, I need your help because I can't stop thinking about killing myself. And her son had already been diagnosed with schizophrenia and he was in a uh, hospital. Um, but even with Kaylin being diagnosed, our family had absolutely no vocabulary for mental health. Mm -hmm. We just, we didn't really get it. And um, when Jessie came to me, it was a total shock. I had no clue. She was very good at keeping it, keeping all, you know, what she was going through from, from all of us. And um, we were lucky to be able to help her. Um, and she was finally properly diagnosed when she was 50 with bipolar disorder with psychotic uh, tendencies. And um, they found, both Kaylin and Jessie, when they came home, that the stigma around their illnesses was just as painful as the illness themselves. And uh, Kalen lost all his friends. Jesse felt that uh, she was frightened to have, to tell parents about her bipolar disorder because she was afraid they wouldn't allow their children to come and play with her, her young daughter at the time. So every day they were impacted, um, not only by, by some behaviors, but also by self-stigma 
um, because they felt that they had been marginalized, they were f full of shame. Um, so we decided to, to do something about it and we started Bring Change to Mind. Um, and it's made a, a huge difference in my family. Um, we, we now know how to support each other. Uh, we know all the signs, we're, we're vigilant. Um, but also, I mean, practically speaking to, about the, um, the community uh, uh, health centers that we, we're really advocating for, when my nephew, when he was 17, had a psychotic break, they live in Montana, he had to be put in a straitjacket and driven two hours to the closest place where he could get help. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, uh, it, it, and uh, he went to an emergency room and um, there was you know, a, an available bed, but that was lucky. Um, so we've been very, very aware of um, the, first of all, the problem of people needing to get help. Uh, I was in the dentist the other day and one of the dent dental assistants came up to me and said, do you know where I can, I need help for my daughter. She's, she's spiraling out of control and down. Where can I go? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just shocking to me. Um, so this plan for me just makes sense and it's so needed. Um, for people to know where to go and to get comprehensive care for mental health issues, behavior health issues. And um, as far as my family is concerned, my sister and my nephew now have productive lives. They have learned how to manage their illnesses, but that's because they have a support group and these kind of community centers would provide that kind of support on a long-term basis for people who need it. You said your family didn't have the vocabulary for talking about mental illness. Do you know why that was or what, you know, how did you get to Nobody that? talked about it. I mean, we started this 10 years ago. Nobody was talking about mental health. Right. right. Well, mental illness. Right. Um, uh, it's just, it's been so taboo. It's been so stigmatized. And for me, they're one, it was, they will say one in five today. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I think the WHO says one in four, but so one in five. <laughs> One in five in this room, you know. Uh, how free do you feel about talking about what you're dealing with or what your family or a friend or a loved one is dealing with? For me, the beginning is to make it to normalize the conversation right. Right. around mental illness. And, and I think once we normalize it and realize that it's part of being of the human condition, then I think we will be more, much more conducive to doing something right. about helping people. And I think that's oh, happening now, maybe because we talk about it almost yes, every day, both of us do, but it seems to me that in the last five or six years that we've been daily involved in this discussion that is, that is much more open about this as just another health problem. And if you talk about it and deal with it as just another health problem, you're much closer to a solution the minute you get to that part of the discussion than you would be otherwise. You're not worried about having to go have a visit of some kind. You're not worried about being sure you take your medicine. You don't have to act like this is a different kind of health problem than any other health problem. And again, let me make the point. And also then at that point, you deal with your other health problems better. If you're showing up for your appointments, if you're taking your medicine, if you're eating better, sleeping better, feeling better about yourself. But I think, Debbie, don't you, that in the yes. last five or six years that they're just a, a much broader 
willingness to talk about this issue as a health problem and to have the have the vocabulary to do it that uh, has been such a problem for not just our society. This is a problem that is around the world to, well, we don't really talk about that. This is somebody in our family that has a problem, but we're not going to discuss with you what that problem might be, where if that problem was cancer or a heart problem or something, you'd be very verbal about discussing it with your friends and cancer neighbors. Cancer used to be a no-no to right. talk about. That's true. Mm -hmm. I remember that. I love you know, the word community. Right. Yes. I think, you know, I think human beings die without community. And I love the idea of community uh, centers for mental health because I think that's a very fundamental part of it. Uh, we can change our, atti our attitudes, but when we change our behavior and open up these centers for people dealing with mental illnesses, then, then we, we have accepted uh, a big uh, percentage of our population as being just like us. No one is their illness. And I think that's one of the things where people get confused. Um, I wanted to just stress as well that this is about hope. And when Glenn's talking about her sister, uh, Jesse, or talk about her nephew, that they're now involved. I have met no, both of them, and they're extraordinary people, and they're living wonderful lives managing a chronic illness. Uh, when you think about somebody with diabetes, we don't say, oh, you're, you're diabetic, oh, you take insulin, oh my goodness, you know. Well, you manage it, you get diagnosed, you get the treatment, you get the medication, you go on with your life. If you are bipolar, it is a, a, uh, a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, I'm very familiar with this. My dad was bipolar at a time in the 60s when we didn't know what it was, and there wasn't the right treatment, there wasn't the right diagnosis, and I saw what, what it was like to be misdiagnosed and then to get the right diagnosis, get the medication, and for him to go back to his life. So part of this normalization is that um, this is manageable, that when people step up, they're able to get the support that they need, they are able to manage a chronic disease, cancer, diabetes, being bipolar, schizophrenia, be able to do what they need to do and go on with their life. So it's a very hopeful time, I think. Right. Senator Sabanow, can you talk a little more specifically about who, what types of Americans your bill is trying to help? So this is done through the Medicaid program. Is this primarily lower income Americans? What we're doing is setting up a structure like health centers where uh, when you go to a health center, if you have private insurance, use that. If uh, you have something else, if you don't have any insurance, you pay a very uh, low sliding scale yourself. But Medicaid is a part of that. And so it's not the same in mental health and addiction services in terms of saying, you meet quality standards, you will get fully reimbursed for the doctor, the nurse, the psychologist the social worker. So we want structurally for this to be the same. You know, it, as we've said before, it's not just grants. You can't say to somebody, uh, you would never say, you need heart surgery, so sorry the grant ran out. We say that in mental health and addiction every day. So what we want to do is have a structure, you know, that regardless of how they come, in terms of financially, uh, that they will be able to be treated and, and that it will be done comprehensively, physical health, mental health, prevention, primary care, and so on. So it's really anybody. It's children. It's seniors. So it would be anybody who could be anybody. So I, I, think, I think the answer, is, which is, is, is no. 
it's not focused at Medicaid, it's not focused at Medicare, it's not focused at adults, it's focused at whoever Whatever. needs that help. Yeah. And the model, the federally qualified health center model, is designed to serve anybody that that's the best, easiest place for them to go. Uh, you know, it's a community. Again, it's it, by definition usually close. Uh, if you don't have private insurance, if you're not on a government program, a sliding uh, pay scale based on what your income is that's very manageable. And so anybody that walks in, whether they're in a state that hasn't ex uh, covered uh, single adults with Medicaid, those individuals can still be part of this program. If they have no income, they have no charge. If they have a little income, they have a very, very small charge. If they have more income, and that's where they want to go, they have, and, and no other program. So it's, it's not designed to focus on any group, just like behavioral health problems aren't focused on people who are lower income or upper income or middle income. These are problems that are pervasive through the society. And, you know, on the opioid front, too, one thing we've seen in our state with the ability to have access as long as you need it to the mental health component, that's a big advantage if, you're, uh, if you have an opioid, if you're, if you're addicted. If you don't have a behavioral health problem before you become addicted, and some people do and some people don't, you have a behavioral health problem once you're addicted, and having that mental health right. component right. That's unlimited. That you know, you can't solve these problems in 14 days or 21 days, like many states have. If you're a Medicaid patient, you might have some access, but it's a very defined access. Uh, we don't envision that. Don't have that in states that have moved in this direction. Well, and what, you know, I was going to also just mention that a lot of folks self-medicate. I, I know you've talked about, Jesse, in terms of drinking and alcohol and so on. Very common someone will excessively drink or become an alcoholic because they're trying to manage the mental illness. And so it's, it's very connected. I think also what's really important is in these community centers, somebody with a serious mental illness will be able to form a connection that they can go back to and back to to get because it <clears throat> takes time to get the balance. Right. It really takes time to get the balance. And you can't just expect somebody to be put into an emergency room, get a couple of doses right. and thrown out or in jail. Uh, there's that terrible cycle of they can get medication and then they're out and they right. go off it. So I think it will, co it will create real uh, bonds of connections where people know that they can go until they can manage their, their illness and then their life. And, and to me, to have it in a community center, there's, there's nothing better than that. Right. Well, in talking, speaking of emergency rooms, you've talked about how this would lighten the load on emergency rooms and yes. law enforcement Huge. who often end up. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you, the, the need to sort of transfer care from those folks over to the mental health professionals? We have law enforcement officials here today that uh, I know can speak to this very well. I'll never forget uh, calling up the head of the Cook County, uh, the sheriff in Cook County, largest jail, I think, in the country in Chicago. And he had just hired a psychiatrist as the director of the jail. And I just, we were working on our, mm -hmm. our bill, and I called him and he said, talk to me a little bit about this. And he said, well, it's real simple. Over half the people in my jail have mental health problems. So it made perfect sense to hire a psychiatrist to direct my jail. And I'm sure there are stories, um, constant stories about that and what's, what's happening. So This is police week, so lots of police and uh, 
in the nation's capital this week, but for the better part of 50 years, the emergency room and the law enforcement have been the de facto mental health delivery system in the country, and nobody is well satisfied, uh, well, well served by that or satisfied by that. And more and more uh, of, of uh, our law enforcement agents uh, in the country uh, take uh, crisis intervention training, realizing that so many of the moments they're involved in involve somebody who's not intending to do something wrong but has a, uh, a mental health problem that needs to be dealt with. And this gives, we need to have and we hope we're creating more options than, as Glenn said, a trip to the emergency room, which is a very, very, very short-term solution. Uh, the more places uh, law enforcement have to work with, including drug courts and mental health courts, but the more places they have to work with in uh, my hometown, Springfield, Missouri, the crisis intervention officers uh, have for several years now carried an iPad that gives them 24-7 access to the Borough Mental Health Center. Uh, and I've, I've been with the crisis intervention officers when they have been dealing with somebody and interestingly, they open that iPad and they've got the person at the mental health center there to have a conversation with them right on the iPad. Suddenly you've got, as a law enforcement officer, you've got a mental health professional right there with you that you have access to. Uh, and uh, it makes a big difference in how that person is dealt with at that moment. And maybe the right thing is more likely to be said. Uh, but uh, law enforcement, probably the biggest beneficiary uh, in addition to the emergency room of moving forward in the right way on this important topic. Glenn, you mentioned your nephew was taken to the emergency room, but can you envision it turning out differently, I suppose, if he had been able to access treatment before that and could have prevented Yeah, I, I think, yes, it would have been incredible. He wouldn't have had to go so far from home and it wouldn't have been so terrifying for him. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for, for one thing, people who are in, in, in whatever state they're in that they, they're <clears throat> confronted by police or they're, they're terrified. I, I've learned that from Kaylin. Mm -hmm. um, we can be scared of them because we're reading on their face this look that says you're either gonna hurt yourself or you're gonna hurt me. But what Kaylin has taught me is most of the time that look is I am terrified and I'm in this place and I don't know what to do. I'm aware of it, but I... So yes, if, if, if there was a place where he could have gone to, uh, lo you know, locally or certainly not two hours away, um, I, it, would, it would make a big difference. Let's zoom out for just a minute. Um, so we know that cases of mental illness are on the rise in the U.S. Um, why? I mean, I know this could be because of, could be because of many factors, <clears throat> but do you see any, um, you know, big causes of this? Or do, do we have any idea why we have more cases of mental illness? No, I, I, I'm wondering sometimes, I mean, obviously, uh, there's a little bit of stress <laughs> going on. Uh, um, but sometimes I wonder if it's more or it's just that we are more open in identifying it, you know, as what I was saying. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd love to hear from the people that look at the, look at the numbers. But um, in other diseases where we identified it, there was treatment, other things available, then we suddenly saw the numbers go up. But it's not always clear as to whether or not that is because of the actual numbers. My guess is 
uh, growing up in a small rural Michigan community, northern community, uh, where my dad was trying to find help. There were a lot of people that were in his situation that didn't come forward. Uh, they didn't have a wife that was a nurse that was trying to help them get care and so on. And so, um, so I'm not sure. I don't. I would be op open to what others think, but I, sometimes I'm not. I'm not sure the numbers are increasing I, in much as we're I identifying. I think we're chemical. We're you know we're chemical creatures, and I think <clears throat> there's the body politic. We feel things. I think as a as a unit, and there's so many factors now going in. There's so much more noise in the world than there was even when, when I was growing up. Right. So much information, you know, so, so many people telling you what you should do, so many, and I just think, I just think it's, it's harder for people to deal with, and um, we, we, we haven't evolved yet to maybe we're, we're capable of taking in all the information and stress. I, I personally think that that's, that's one of the reasons, and also, um, Maybe, maybe with slowly with people come be more willing to come out. There's there's more more people being identified, but mm -hmm. um, it's still a, a big problem when people feeling like they can't. Um, so I don't know if you watch Netflix, but um, there was a show on Netflix that prompted some controversy a couple of years ago, called Thirteen Reasons Why, which is about a teenage girl's suicide. And recently there's some more buzz about it because a study came out in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which suggested that teen suicide rates actually spiked after that show came out. Now we should caveat, they can't actually prove that that's the cause, um, but it does raise the question of how do, you, how do you talk about the issue more without it becoming a trigger for people? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a difference in talking about your mental health challenges and and talking about suicide and showing people in suicidal situations and I, I didn't watch that show but I've read the reports and it would be a unbelievable coincidence if that spike in teen suicides just happened to occur right after that show was on for the next 60 days. Uh, we don't want to you don't want to not talk about mental health problems because you don't want to glorify or focus on suicide. And I think they're two really different things. I think we do have to be more thoughtful. Uh, there's so much information out there and so much information coming at people all at once. And uh, it's almost no gatekeeper, no matter no matter how good you are as a parent, your kid is smarter when it comes to figuring out the social media and access to media. And uh, I think it's a, con it's a concern, and I think it could be one of the reasons that people experience so much more stress, that they just see so many things coming at them all the time. And uh, it's, a, it's a stressful world, but I, I do think things like 13 Reasons are a problem and people should be thinking about the consequences of the kinds of things they, they focus on. Now, Glenn would have a much greater sense of how right. that we'll impacts I, I think it was irresponsible. Yeah. I really do. I mean, my sister went through suicidal ideation. She, she tried to, to end her life twice, and I think, I think you have to take responsibility in, in the uh, because there's so much potential for impact mm. with our social media, you really have to 
take responsibility for, for the stories that you tell. Um, I, I think also we, we now in Bring Change to Mind are, are, are concentrating on high schools. We're, we're into, we are creating these clubs in high schools and they've been in wildly successful where kids go um, peer to peer with obviously an advisor but and they are they go into a stigma free zone they can talk about everything and anything that they're living that they're dealing with and they can help their friends as well and and train each other you know uh, how to be vigilant you know within their schools because they're dealing with it they're all they're, it's you know I don't know if there's a school in this country that hasn't had, uh, it hasn't had a suicide of some sort. But, <laughs> some sort. Um, yeah, but I th do think, I, I think, I think the kids get it. They really get it. The kids, and, um, and, and I think again, to come back to these community health centers, that is gonna impact kids as well. We've created a place where it's okay to go. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully they will have, have, you'll have, they'll have a place uh, in their school that's okay to go. Um, but I think that's, that's what we really have to concentrate on. Do you think Hollywood though has a positive role to play in how we talk about mental illness and sort of bringing it forward and, and sort of normalizing it as the senator? I do, I think it has huge power. Yes, and I, you know, hope people will do that. Do you think we've seen, you know, more more focus in Hollywood on mental health issues or more openness to maybe portray what people go through in perhaps film or television? I think there's probably more more interest. It's it's. Um, I think in the past it's been so easy to to make somebody with a mental illness the the antagonist, you know, because every story needs a good guy and a bad guy. So easy to make somebody with a mental illness a bad guy having been one of the great bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> of all time. Exactly. Of all time, I yeah. can talk about <laughs> You know, I would wonder. But it's just more of a challenge to figure out how to tell stories. Right. And again, as we normalize it, you will have more and more characters who are living with it, and it's okay. I was just going to mention um, when Bradley Cooper did Silver Linings Playbook, he actually came into D.C. and uh, did an event with Patrick Kennedy and I on mental health and talking about this. And, you know, he played somebody who was bipolar in the community, all the struggles he went through, um, and yet but came out of the other side and was living in the community. It was a very different view of someone than uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know. I mean, it was just very different. And so um, uh, I hope we're going to see more of that in terms of, of how people struggle, manage, live their life, you know, go on. Well, I think that's all the time we have, although this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you so much. I'd love to thank Glenn Close and Senators Stabenow and Blunt for joining us. And now I'd like to turn it over to my colleagues for the next segment. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.